We're continuing this morning through the book of Romans, the sermon series we're calling The Gospel of God, because Paul unfolds for us um, that very gospel that belongs to God, the righteousness of God and how it becomes ours through Christ our Lord. This morning we are in Romans 4, at the very end of Romans 4, verses 13 through 25. If you want to follow along, you can find that on page 8 of your worship folder. This is God's holy word. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law or who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath. But where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of God in whom he believed who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. This is God's word. Let us pray. Father in heaven, again, we thank you and praise you for your word, for the truth that you have given us, that Jesus indeed was given up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. We ask now that as we consider these things, you would show us the beauty of the gospel, that you would reveal to us how we are made your people, not by the things we do, but by the righteousness that comes through faith alone. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So in the beginning of Romans 4, as we saw last week, the Apostle Paul introduced to us the example of Abraham to show us how God justifies people, not on the basis of what we have done, but solely on the basis of faith in what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. And so it is faith, not works, not our own efforts, not the things we do trying to obey God's law that justify us. That is to say that make us right in a right standing with God so that we might know his blessing. But it is through faith in Jesus 
that all of our sinful failures are forgiven so that we might be justified in God's sight. And this morning, as we continue through the end of chapter 4, Paul has something to say now about the nature of that faith that Abraham demonstrated and which we must have if we hope to know God's blessing and be delivered from his holy judgment upon our sin. In other words, if faith is the only way to be counted as righteous before God, then what kind of faith do we need to have? What is the nature, the very essence of that faith? And what we learn here is that Abraham's faith was an enduring faith, a faith that persevered throughout his life. It was not a one-time thing. It was not a prayer that he said at some time to receive Jesus into his heart. It was an enduring, ongoing faith. No, it was not a perfect faith. There were failures There were doubts, there were struggles, but despite those failures and struggles, Abraham never abandoned his trust in the ultimate fulfillment of God's promises to him and to the world. So saving faith is an enduring faith, a persevering faith. It continues on throughout life until we see with our eyes, what our hearts already believe. Christ, our Lord, in all his glory. So it's a faith then that will outlast all of our doubts and all of our sorrows. And thanks be to God, all of our sin. It's a faith that shines forth in righteousness given to us by God the Son. So the first thing we see then about this enduring faith here is that enduring faith depends on grace, not on the quality of faith itself. Enduring faith depends on grace, the grace of God given to us, and not on the quality of our own faith itself. In verse 13, Paul continues to unload this idea that we are justified by faith. He says, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. And that promise that God spoke, of course, is God's covenant promise to Abraham that he spoke way back in Genesis. And there were two main parts to that promise. The first, that there would be an heir to Abraham, and from that heir would be offspring. And the second would be that there would be an inheritance or a land. That heir ultimately is Christ Jesus. The offspring are all who who believe. It is the, the people of God who have the same faith as Abraham. And the heir inheritance, as Paul says here, is the entire world. The world belongs to Christ. The world is will be full with his kingdom made up of his people. And so it is really a promise of a community, a covenant community of God's people united together through Jesus Christ who fill the entire world. That's the promise. And the only way that promise could be fulfilled would be by the grace of God. And so one, particularly Abraham, had to have faith in God, not in the law. 
Paul says here the promise didn't come through the law of God. It was not accomplished. It wasn't fulfilled by God's holy law. God's law doesn't build his kingdom. It is the faith of his people in what God has done that does that. Faith or righteousness comes through faith. Now, there's something really remarkable about all that when we understand how covenants work. Because God relates to his people through this ancient Near Eastern form of a relationship called a covenant. And in those covenant, the promises were fulfilled typically by keeping certain stipulations, obligations, a covenant law. So, for example, if two kings entered into a covenant agreement with one another, let's say uh, they will not continue to war. They will recognize certain boundaries. Perhaps a certain river will be the boundary of their kingdoms. And if one of those kings says, hey, wait a minute, the grass on the other side of the river is a lot greener. I'm going to send my flocks, my sheep to go and graze on that side of the river. But the law of that covenant said, you got to keep your, your sheep on the other side. Well, he just violated that covenant. He broke the covenant law. The covenant would only be fulfilled if both kings recognized the law and kept it. But when God gave this covenant promise to Abraham, the only obligation that Abraham had was to simply believe it, to trust God to do absolutely everything, to keep every obligation and stipulation because Abraham wouldn't be able to do it. There were no other requirements. There was only faith. And God said to him, I will give you offspring. I will give you a child, an heir, an inheritance. And all that you need to do is simply trust that I'm going to do that. Believe me and I will do this. And that's why we call this covenant the covenant of grace. It is completely from God's grace. Abraham had to depend on that and not on what he could do and certainly not on the quality of his own faith even. He simply had to trust God's grace. And so Paul continues to make a point here that the the promise of God's covenant depends on grace and not the law. He says in verse 14, For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. If the fulfillment of the promise depended upon the keeping of the law, then faith would be rendered as powerless, and it would have no significance whatsoever. It wouldn't matter. There would just be a list of rules, of rights and wrongs that you had to keep. And if you failed to do them, oops, too bad. You broke covenant. You don't get the blessing of the promise that God has given. But that's not how it works. Thanks be to God. You see, the law doesn't bring about the fulfillment of the promise at all because God has given a law. What God's law does, as Paul says here, is it brings wrath. It brings God's judgment. It exposes the sinfulness of humanity, of all of us. It shows us how we have fallen short of God's glory and we have broken them in the things we do, how we treat one another and how we worship God. We have all failed. God's law exposes that. And if you break one part, even a small part, you're guilty of breaking all of it, the scriptures tell us. 
And if there was no law, well, then there wouldn't be a transgression. We wouldn't really need faith. Because for a transgression to exist, there must be a standard to be transgressed. And there is, though, a standard, a very clear one that God has given in his word and revealed to us, and we have broken it. So faith is needed then. The promise comes through faith, not the law. Otherwise, faith would be meaningless, for the law only brings wrath and not a blessing of promise. So Paul says in verse 16, that is why it, the promise of God, depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. So the promise of God, of his forgiveness, of his blessing, to be a God to his people and they his people, that rests in accordance with grace. Now what makes grace so special though? I mean, we talk about it a lot. The Bible mentions grace. What distinguishes grace from, say, God's love or God's mercy? Well, it is simply the fact that grace is absolutely undeserved. It is a pure act of God's will that he blesses people with his grace not based on anything we might do, not even upon our faith. He simply chooses out of his own will to show us grace. Thomas Goodwin was an English pastor in the 1600s. He was a chaplain as well. And he he had this to say about grace. He says, grace is more than mercy and love. It super adds to them. It denotes not simply love, but the love of a sovereign, transcendent, superior. One that may do what he will. That may wholly choose whether he will love or no. Now God, who is an infinite sovereign, who might have chosen whether ever he would love us or no, for him to love us, that is grace. See, God didn't have to love you. He does not have to show you mercy. In fact, that is not what we deserve because the law shows us that we deserve wrath that we have broken God's law. That is what we deserve. And yet God shows favor upon us and He blesses us and He gives us this promise to be our God, to forgive us of our sins. That is grace. It is given freely according to the pleasure of His own sovereign will. So it could never be earned then. And when God called Abraham out of his father's house and told him to go to a land that he would give him an offspring and that from him would come many nations and he would give him a land and an inheritance. There was nothing in Abraham that set him apart for that at all. He was undeserving as the next person, as his neighbor. Yet God in his grace called Abraham into that covenant relationship. And that's why the promise depends on on faith that trusts in the grace of God. 
It trusts that God's salvation, His fulfillment of this promise to, to bring the blessing of forgiveness and redemption to all to the earth is completely dependent on God's sovereign action. So enduring faith trusts a God who will act sovereignly to, to fulfill what He has promised to do. It trusts in God's absolute power over all things. And grace is the power of God then to create and to resurrect. That's what Abraham was believing. So you notice in verse 17, Paul says this. He says, as it is written, he's quoting again from Genesis regarding God's words to Abraham. I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. So Paul, again, he's citing from Genesis 17.5 here, which is just an elaboration of God's promise to Abraham that he gave him back in Genesis 15. And he's saying that Abraham believed that promise would come to pass because he understood that the grace of God is manifested in his power to give life to the dead and to bring things into existence which had previously not existed. He believed that God manifested his grace in resurrecting power and creating power. You see, it takes power to bring life out of death and to create something out of nothing in order to save us from our sin. That's the kind of power we need. The Bible describes our sinful natures as a spiritual death, that there is no one who seeks after God. So God must, out of his Uh, an act of his sheer grace, breathe into us new spiritual life. That's what we mean by that term, regeneration. He's, by his grace, lifting us up from a spiritually dead state and giving us new life so that we might have faith, that we might rest in his promise. And when we do that, we are made part of his people, his covenant community. A people who at one time were not a people. It took creative power of God to call something out of nothing and cause it to exist. And so the word of God's power that said, let there be light, is the same word that calls together his church, all the redeemed of all time, into existence. And Abraham understood that. He understood that God had the power of life and creation. And it would take that kind of power to fulfill this promise God had made to him. The only way that Abraham was going to get an heir is if God brought life into being by a sheer act of his grace. Now, Abraham believed that. And we say, yeah, but didn't he fail in his faith? And we talked about that last week. Remember the, the Hagar incident? When Abraham took his wife's servant girl and fathered a child in an attempt to fulfill this promise and have an heir, wasn't that a failure in his faith? Well, yes, it was. He didn't trust God completely in that moment. But Abraham, even in that failure, didn't abandon God. 
He still believed the promise. In fact, he believed that somehow God would have to complete that promise considering Abraham was so far advanced in age. Now, his doubt and his impatience was mixed with faith in the promise. And despite his failure, it was his faith that won out in the end. It overcame his sinful failures and his doubts. See, enduring faith doesn't depend on the quality of your faith. It depends on the grace of God who brings life out of nothing, or life out of death, and, and existence out of nothing. Enduring faith depends on the grace of God, not the quality of faith itself. Secondly, enduring faith delights in hope when hope doesn't have any business showing up. Enduring faith delights in hope, even when it doesn't make sense. Verse 18, Paul says, In hope Abraham believed against hope that he would become the father of many nations, As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. Abraham believed in hope, the hope of God's promise to him, when that promise was against all odds of ever coming to pass. The very idea that he would have a child was completely out of accord with hope. From a human perspective, common sense, logical reason, and practical experience would have all stood as looming obstacles before that promise that God had made. Hope had no business showing up in the life of Abraham, but there it was, and he believed it against all hope. And verse 19 tells us why Abraham had no business believing in the hope of God's promise to him. First, as he thought about his own body, it was clear that he was an old man. He was well advanced in age. As Paul says here, his body was as good as dead. I just had a birthday on the 27th of December, and I already feel that my body is as good as dead. And I'm not 100 years old, or nearly 100 years old, but Abraham was. Secondly, there was another problem that showed why Abraham should not have had hope, and that was the issue of his wife, Sarah's barrenness. For decades, she had not been able to conceive a child, and yet Abraham was promised an heir through her. And so this hope of this promise coming true appears to be facing insurmountable odds. And despite all of that, Abraham's faith endured. It persevered. Verses 20 and 21, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as as he gave glory to God fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Now again, we can ask the question, well, what about those times, those lapses of faith and struggle and doubt in Abraham's life? 
Did he show unbelief at times? Well, yes, he did. Of course he did. But again, Paul is here showing us the overall character and nature of Abraham's faith over the course of his life. It was a faith that endured. It endured despite these challenges to the hope and despite his own failures and doubts. He kept on believing in God and that God would do what he had said he would do. He didn't abandon that dependence on the grace of God. In fact, those trials of his faith caused his faith to grow, Paul says. God's grace strengthened Abraham's faith in the promise so that it would endure harder and harder tests. Have you ever watched that show on the History Channel, Forged in Fire? It's a knife-making competition, if you've never seen it, a knife or blade-making competition between different blacksmiths. It's one of those shows you watch and I think, yeah, I could do that. And I know if I were to try it, I would never do it. Uh, But it's really uh, interesting. I enjoy it. And to make a knife strong, metal must be superheated in a forge, many hundreds of degrees. And then it is beat with many blows from a hammer. And it is stretched and it is shaped and it is molded and it is formed. And all of that, the heat and the beating by the hammer... Make that blade into something that is strong and will not break. That is what the trials and the bumps and the bruises and the doubts and the struggles do to our faith in Christ. It hardens it. It makes it strong. It makes it endure. And so you can have a sword or a knife that lasts for many centuries. Our faith endures through the fires and even the fires of our own doubts and failures. All the difficulties Abraham faced only served to strengthen his faith in God's promise to him. And so he hoped against hope. He hoped when he had no business doing so. And he delighted in that hope. It energized him and it gave him strength and confidence, being fully convinced that God would do what he had promised. Age weakened his body, but it strengthened his faith. He knew that the God of life could create life out of his own weakness. And so he delighted in that hope as he depended entirely on the grace of God. And so the reality is, for those of us who are Christians who know the Lord, we do struggle like Abraham. We grow weary It gets hard at times to keep believing God's promises. They seem so distant. Sometimes they feel just like beautiful words. But is there any real hope that things will be better, that all that is wrong will be made right again, that redemption will become a full reality, that God will finish building His kingdom on this earth and sin will be removed forever? The old covenant people of God, Israel, certainly felt that as well. As they faced captivity in Babylon, it seemed like God's hope or the hope of God in his promises, it was a lost cause. But God gave them a reinsurance through the words of the prophet Isaiah. He tells them that God would send a servant. That servant would bring deliverance to God's people. 
Not just a physical deliverance from their captivity, but a spiritual deliverance. And regarding that servant of God, declared through Isaiah, we read these words in Isaiah 42. A bruised reed, this servant, will not break. And a faintly burning wick, he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint nor be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Centuries later, after Isaiah, Matthew, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, as he pens his gospel, notes that Jesus is the fulfillment of that text. Jesus is the servant that Isaiah prophesied so long ago. Jesus is the one who will not break the bruised weed or snuff out that burning wick. Jesus would bring spiritual healing and holy justice to all the earth. So what is a bruised reed in a smoldering wick? Well, it's a metaphor for those whose hope seems dim. You see, a bruised reed, like a piece of bamboo with a defect in the middle, isn't useful for building with or making a fishing rod. And a smoldering wick only burns for so long. It doesn't put off a lot of light, a lot of heat. And so these, it's a metaphor then of those whose faith seems weak and struggling. But notice what Jesus, the servant, will not do. He doesn't look at that bruised reed and say, yeah, you're not good enough. I'm just throwing you in the dustbin. I need a stronger one. He will not break it. He takes it anyhow. And he uses it to continue to build his kingdom. You see... God will mend the one who is broken. He will fan that small wick into a great flame for God is a gracious God and He will not abandon you though you are tempted to abandon Him if you are His through Christ your Lord. And though your faith might be that small glowing ember because the shadows of this life continue to fall upon you, God will not let you go. He will give you a hope in which you can delight. A hope that has no business showing up. Because through the shaking of your own soul, the hope in His promises will become certain. Enduring faith delights in hope when hope doesn't make sense. That's the nature of Abraham's faith. It depends on the grace of God and it delights in the hope that God gives. But Paul doesn't just show us the nature of Abraham's faith, his enduring faith, to give us a mere object lesson and say, now you go do that. Now what he's doing here is giving us this picture of Abraham because he wants us to see the bigger picture. Because Abraham was just one part of God's story of redeeming grace. A part that he makes you part of when he shows you his grace, the grace of his gospel. For enduring faith makes you part of God's everlasting people through his promises fulfilled in Jesus. After reminding us again that God counted Abraham's faith as righteousness, 
Paul writes these words in verses 23 and 25. He says, But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who was raised who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord and who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. God's word to Abraham is fulfilled not just for Abraham, it was fulfilled for you. Now Abraham saw the promise filled immediately in his life with the birth, of course, of Isaac. God to give him an heir, but that was just the beginning. It was the beginning of the unfolding of the great plan to redeem a people, not just an Abraham, but an entire people, millions and millions of people from all nations and all families gathered together to the banner of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the ultimate heir, the mediator of God's covenant who makes us his people. So by declaring Abraham righteous, through his enduring faith in the promise, God was paving the way for you and me to be declared righteous before God through our enduring faith in God's promise that is fulfilled in Christ. That's what Paul shows us here at the end in verse 25, that Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise. He was delivered up for our trespasses. He was raised for our justification. That is a a creedal statement, a, a statement of faith. Something that we must believe that Jesus had done for those who know him. He was delivered up. That is to say, he was given over to death on the cross in the place of those for whom he saves. And he was delivered up for our trespasses, our violations of God's commandments. And he was raised from the grave, overcoming death, defeating it forever for our justification so that God could declare us right before him. And the resurrection of Christ was the, the proof, the, the vindication that Jesus had indeed done everything that needed to be done. All was paid for our trespasses. The judgment of God, his law was satisfied and the curse was broken. And so it takes us back again to that resurrecting and that creating power of God. It was the resurrected, creative power of God that fulfilled the promise God made to Abraham, a promise that sees its fulfillment in us through Jesus Christ. Just as Abraham knew that God could give his decaying body new life, so we believe that God gives our spiritual decay new life as he makes us his own through Christ. And just as Abraham believed that God could open the barren womb of Sarah, so we believe that God opened the barren tomb of Jesus as he walked out in victory over sin and death for everyone who call upon him for their salvation. And that victory secured the promise forevermore. It is a real hope that has become a real reality. Yes, Abraham did have offspring, more than he could number. And 
This morning, as you gather here, as a believer in Jesus Christ, you are part of that lineage of faith. God has fulfilled his promise. And you don't need perfect faith to know God. You just need that enduring faith that perseveres even through your own struggles and doubts. So we believe even when hope doesn't make sense. We believe in that hope because it depends completely on the grace of God to accomplish what he has promised rather than in the quality of our own faith itself. You see, enduring faith, it it doesn't believe in faith. It believes in a person. It believes in Jesus, the heir of the promise. And so if you do believe, if you do have that faith, keep on believing. Even though you might be struggling, let God strengthen your faith through his word, through his sacraments, through his, the fellowship of his church. Let him build you up. Let his grace be that which sustains you and feeds you and nourishes you so that you might have a faith that endures until that great day when our faith becomes sight and we see with our eyes what our hearts already believe, the face of our Lord Jesus Christ. But if you don't believe, I would implore you to start now because there is no other hope. There is only the hope of Christ. You don't have to wait till you figure out all of your life. Good luck with that. You don't have to try to make yourself perfect. That will never happen. All you have to do is take God at his word through faith and repentance. And what is repentance? It is turning from trusting your own efforts to save yourself, to make yourself a better person, and completely trusting the God who resurrects you, who gives you new life now in Christ, and who will raise up your body on the last day to know Christ forevermore. He will not fail. So believe him. Have that enduring faith of Abraham that God keeps his promises. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and this wonderful truth that you do fulfill your promises and we can have hope even though it doesn't make any sense because you have already secured the blessings that are ours in Christ. Give us this faith. Help us to endure even as we struggle through this life and we see the evil in the world, we see our own failure and the fact that even though we claim Christ at so many times, we break His law. Father, we rest on the forgiveness that is ours by Your grace, depending completely on it in Jesus' name. Amen.